So we're going to be in Matthew 5. I'm going to do um, kind of what Zach did. I'm going to read 1 through 12. We'll pray, and then I'll, I'll show you the part that we're going to be focusing on this week. Sound good? A lot of red text. You're looking at red text, right? And that's the pressure on me. You can't get this stuff wrong, okay? So this is the red text. Um, every bit of scripture is important, but we're going to actually hear. People are like, I wish I could hear Jesus, right? Well, tonight you'll hear Jesus in his own words. Sound good? All right. So chapter 5, beginning verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. That's Jesus. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil and false against you falsely for my sake on Facebook. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Yay, persecution, right? Yay. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we just ask that uh, we'd hear from you tonight, that uh, as Zach and I pray often and we mean it, and we're not ashamed to repeat it, that that which comes from me um, in my flesh, that I try to drag into your word, would that just be discarded, um, forgotten? But that which you have seen fit to place in scripture, would that be embedded into our hearts? The simple truths, the complex truths, um, the way in which that, that we are called to display your glory on earth. Would you begin a new work, even for those of us that have heard this before, would you begin a new work in our hearts tonight? Not so that the world would see us, um, but so that the world would be forced to see you. And so we just ask that you, uh, you, you would have your hand over this study, that our worship would continue, even though the music has ended. I ask for the ability to teach, and for all of us, that we have hearts that are open, that have been scored, and that are prepared to learn. Jesus, we love you. Can't wait to see you again. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as Zach talked a little bit about last week, the Beatitudes. This is Jesus kicking off the Sermon on the Mount Arguably his most epic sermon. They're all epic. um, Very well documented in multitude of gospels. And we see here Jesus' call on the Christian life is radically different than the call that the world places. And so I actually kind of want to kick off. The Beatitudes just simply means the blessings. Okay? The blessings, these are the blessings. That's why they're saying blessed, 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 blessed. And Zach had an amazing, I saw chatter on Facebook too because someone posted an article about like, stop saying like blessed and all that. And so I think it was Ashley. And she was like, my pastor just preached on this last week. Right, it was, it was you, right? I got it right. So, and it was just, it, it was epic. If you've ever, you know, seen hashtag blessed, 
and you didn't, weren't here last week, go back, um, take a look at that framing of, of just the concept of being blessed. And Zach framed it so well and, and it reorients us. And so these are the blessings that are bestowed upon those that are under the banner of Christ. And so the blessings, the blessings, the blessings, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. This is Jesus if I could sum it up in one term, especially or in one phrase, this little part, the Beatitudes, is Jesus describing the character of kingdom citizens. Describing the character of kingdom citizens, right? And so look, we all know, even just at a global level, when you drop into another country, there is a different character about those people, is there not? There's different rituals, different customs. They look different, right? They act different. They believe things are different. I mean, I studied, I I almost double major, but I did a minor in sociology. And one of the fascinating things for me was to take a look at these other cultures and the things that they considered, for instance, beautiful. There's cultures that the ankle is the most beautiful thing on a woman for a male. Some of you are like, I'm moving, right? You're like, right? But they cover their ankles. It's it's akin to, to showing cleavage in that country, right? Like it doesn't matter if their ankles are covered, guys like, I don't know what she looks like, right? But it's just, it's a, and you go into these different areas, you go into different cultures, even within the U.S., the South has kind of a different character than the Northeast, does it not? I'm from the Midwest, right? I started off in a very kind of different mentality. I had a, uh, an accent. I dr- I dr- I'm from Minnesota. I drug out my O's. I'd say, I go to the boat, right? Originally from Chicago, we go to the bars and watch the bears, right? And, and you kind of describe, you're like, man, it's different when you go to the South. Man, it's different when you go to the Midwest. It's, it's different when you go up to Washington. They say pop instead of soda, which I think is heresy, right? And so you drop into these other countries. You drop into other cultures. You drop into other groups. You drop into different organizations and companies and schools, right? No one's going to argue that, that Kowloon has the exact same uh, you know, educational environment or, or, or culture as Pepperdine even. And they're like just a few miles apart. And what Jesus is doing is he's coming in to human history and he's saying, I'm building my kingdom. We know that Jesus is currently actively building his kingdom. The, the culture will always be on the decline. We know this. The world will always be headed toward destruction. But take heart that Jesus is actually building his church right now. Just because the culture is diving, first of all, it doesn't mean that we get to discard it and say, well, then to hell in a handbasket, I'm not going to do anything. We don't get to do that because that doesn't preach a restorative gospel. So we go into those dark places like Jesus went into the dark places of the culture. But at the same time, you need to know that even though culture by definition, society, the world by definition is headed toward destruction, that we are being built up, that Jesus himself is building up his church and he's building up a kingdom. In fact, that was one of the last things he said before they murdered him. He said, are you not a king? And he said, it's true what you say. I'm a king. But he was talking about a different kingdom. He wasn't talking about ruling over people here on earth. He was talking about the consummating everything and being Lord and King of all things. And so Jesus has come into human history. And what he's doing now is he, he ascends up this mountain. And some people read it like he saw the multitudes and so he ran, right? It's not like that. We, very likely many people followed him all the way up there right? And he's preaching to disciples and to the crowd. And later in the, in the book, it says that the multitudes had heard him. Okay. So this isn't like, oh no, there's lots of people. Let's go talk by ourselves privately. And so Jesus is describing life inside this kingdom while we're here. And that, 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 that really, ha- I, I believe that should, I hope it does change your paradigm, your, your view is that you're actually kingdom citizens first and foremost. 
It doesn't mean we discard other citizenships that are like, fine, then I'm not an American citizen. No, that's fine. There's a place for that, for sure. But first and foremost, you're a part of a kingdom that's being built up by an active and living God. And so what he's doing is he's describing, he comes in, he says, look, you're going to be all over. You're going to be scattered. You're going to be around the world. But when he talks about the character of the people that are within this kingdom, it's radically different from the world. It doesn't separate us from the world, but it sets us apart within the world. These are the things, and I'm going to give away the ending. The, the, the purpose of this is to show Jesus now. That's the whole purpose of all this. Zach and I rail that a lot, and, I, and we're probably not ever going to stop. Because we don't want you to make it about you. That you need to do this so other people will see that you're doing this. It's not. It's that, that we, get to, we get to display, we get to display as image bearers of God, we get to display his nature on earth. That's the call, is displaying his nature. It's not legalism, it's not lawlessness. It's displaying the God of love to a broken, dying world headed for destruction. And so he's describing the character. He says, I've got a kingdom. It doesn't have walls. It doesn't have a dungeon. It doesn't have earthly rule or peasants or classes. It's the church now. And he's going to describe the citizens within this kingdom. And I'll also launch into this by saying this, is that we live upside down. We live currently upside down. The world is inverted, right? The world is inverted. It's upside down. It's not as it once was. It's not as it was intended to be. And it's not going to be this way forever. It's going to be turned right side up. It was when it began, it was fractured and it turned upside down. We are living upside down. And though God wanted it, right? Though God wanted it to be right side up the entire time, he knew in his sovereignty that it would not. And he sent a solution immediately that said, eventually I'm going to turn this thing right side up again. And, and we're going to take a look at one instance today. But you need to know when you take a look at the life and the work of Jesus and you see him performing miracles, that is not him defying the laws of nature. What he's actually doing is saying, you live upside down and a miracle provides an opportunity for a brief moment to show you how things were supposed to be. So when he feeds everyone like that with a Lunchable, when he feeds everyone, he says, no one goes hungry, right? No one was intended to be hungry. He shows you in a moment that there'll be no scarcity of food, that no one will go hungry, when he walks on water, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm God. I'm subject to the fact that I created nature, therefore I dominate nature. I created it. As man, he was subject to the incarnation. But for a brief moment, he wasn't undoing the laws of nature. He was actually showing you how they were initially created. Of course he can walk on water. We're only, he, no, no human can actually do that. Because why? Because we live upside down. And so we're going to take a look at one of those instances, but you need to know that as, as one pastor in the Canal Valley, I know he's teaching a, a series on Matthew right now, and the, the, the series is entitled Upside Down Kingdom. It's that we live upside down. And what we get the opportunity to do with your friends, with your family, with your parents, with your coworkers, with your acquaintances, is for brief moments of time, you get to show them what life was supposed to be, how it should be, and ultimately how it will be again when we're governed solely by King Jesus. And so we live upside down and Jesus comes in and he says, look, I have to reset your framework because you're seeing everything upside down. 
You're seeing everything differently than it was intended to be. And he begins to pull the scales back from our eyes. He begins to, 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 to do a work in your heart that he does first and foremost to show you himself and then calls us to display his love, his glory on earth until he returns. Because as you've heard me say, he used Israel in the Old Testament to the point to his coming, just the same as he's using the church right now to point to his coming. That's the game plan. That's the, the macro understanding of the, go- of the gospel, which is Jesus is coming to be with his people. And then here he shows us what life in this upside down kingdom looks like in this opportunity and this call to be set apart from culture, no matter where you are in the world, to be set apart, not separated from, but to be set apart from within. And so he wants to then recalibrate how we view concepts. And so he began, and I won't, I won't try to summarize what Zach did far better than I ever could last week. If you weren't here, I highly recommend you go back. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There he goes. He's talking about this kingdom again. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We're going to spend time on five and six. It says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Now, what some of you heard was blessed are the weak. That's what you heard, because that's what the world wants to tell you. When God calls you to be meek, the world says, God wants you to be weak. So no, I think meek. Yeah, weak. That's what I said. So I sort of think that, I think it's more than that. No, it's just you're weak. Your God calls you to be weak and pathetic and a pushover. That's what you're to be. You're to be submissive. Wives being submissive is really actually a very, very bad thing. You're not to be meek in that. You're not to be submissive in that environment. That's the God you serve. He wants you to be weak. That's not the understanding in the original language at all. But I wanted to see what the world thinks of it. And I love when the world, when you look up world definitions, it, you'd be surprised sometimes that they get it really right and sometimes they get it disastrously wrong. So I just did Google definition of meek, okay? Quiet, gentle, easily imposed upon, submissive. Synonyms, I like this, synonyms. Submissive, yielding, obedient, compliant, tame, biddable, tractable, acquiescent, humble, differential, Timid, unprotesting, unresisting, quiet, mild, gentle, docile, lamb-like, shy, diffident, unassuming, self-effacing. Essentially, you kind of try to wipe yourself off the the picture. Self-effacing, and I love that this is in the Google definition. It says this as a synonym. Somebody like cinnamon? (laughs) It says this, like a lamb to the slaughter. In the Google definition. At some point, they're going to figure that out and scrap it. But right now, currently, as today, it still says that. That being meek is like a lamb being led to the slaughter. So we're like, we're already gospel. Like, this is games. This is epic. We're already there. We're at Jesus' cross, right? In being meek, which he calls us to be, it's to be gentle, quiet. But I'll tell you this. The, the Greek word, which is praeus, I believe, P-R-A-U-S, This is one of those words that's impossible. It's impossible to translate with one word. There isn't a word-to-word translation. There is a word-to-concept translation. And what it means is this proper balance between anger and indifference. What? Because those are kind of the two ends of the spectrum. Anger, and by the way, being meek doesn't mean you can never be angry. Jesus was angry on several occasions in the Bible alone. But it's, it's straddling the divide between being angry 
and just not caring, totally indifferent. That's where this divide comes in. And so it's between anger and indifference. David Guzik said, in the vocabulary of the ancient Greek language, the meek person was not passive or easily pushed around. Was Jesus easily pushed around? When the Pharisees cornered him, what did he do? Crushed it. It was epic, wasn't he? He wasn't like, ah, oh, got to be submissive to the Pharisees, religious leaders. Did he push back? You better believe it. Was he angry at times? Yeah, always in a righteous anger, never in an unrighteous anger. And so it says it was, not, it was not passive or easily pushed around. The main idea behind the word meek was strength under control, like a strong stallion that was being trained to do the job instead of running wild. This is what you've probably heard or quite possibly heard pastors say is that the, the concept in the original Greek, when they put it together, they were, they were describing a bit in a horse's mouth. No one looks at a horse and says, weak animal, right? No one. That's for cats, right? I've got cats. I love cats, right? But no one looks at a horse like, what a weak beast. Could you come up with something stronger? Has anyone, who rides horses here? How many of you not really ride horses, but you've ridden one time and you were scared when you got on that thing, weren't you? It wasn't like sitting on your dog, right? That thing, you're, you're like, this thing could do whatever it wants with me in this moment, right? If that thing bucks me off this cliff, this cliff, I'm dead, right? That is a strong beast. But what is it doing? Guzik would say that it's, it, it has been trained to do a job, though powerful. It has allowed itself to be harnessed. What do we literally call those things, those apparatuses that we put on animals? Harnesses, right? And kids, apparently, at the Oaks Mall. We do that too, right? right? It's this power under control. It doesn't mean that you're a weak personality. It actually means that you're a strong personality that allows yourself to be under control. Turn with me to Matthew 17. I want to show you something. To tie in the miracles, the upside down kingdom, and meekness. Because maybe some of you are saying, all right, well, this is the part where you show me where Jesus is meek. Yes and no. Stick with me on this. We're going to read one through nine. This is what's known as the transfiguration. This is where Jesus is going to perform a miracle. It says, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. That was his, his inner crew, his tightest crew. They got to see and experience and do things that even the other disciples didn't get to do. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Who's seen Transformers? This is bigger than that. This is Optimus Prime on roids, okay? This is Jesus, meek, mild Jesus, creator of the universe. It says, in the beginning, God created, and every time it says something was created, it was Jesus who created it. Why do we have light? Because Jesus created it. Colossians 1.16 says, all things are created by him, for him, and through him. So when God the Father spoke, that's why we call Jesus the word, Jesus went to work and created all things. He created everything. He's that big, and yet he became that small. And in this moment, he shows them both. This is where Jesus stretches out. He's probably pretty sore from being in this cute little body for 30-something years. And he stretches out. It says, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. Anyone looked at the sun? Guys especially. You've done it, right? 
You're like, mom said not to. I'm going to check it out. It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. You've done it. You can't even glimpse at the sun. What happens if you hold that thing for three seconds? You start getting retina damage, don't you? Like the sun. Just his face. Like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. So it's not only beaming off his face, his entire body now. These guys, are they, they can't even, this thing is blazing bright. His face like the sun, his clothes white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah, which is just the old school way of saying the law and the prophets. This is the whole Old Testament coming together right now. Love that. Moses and Elijah, basically the law and the prophets appeared to them talking with him. By the way, this is why we know that you maintain some of your physical characteristics in heaven because they knew who these two guys were, right? Some people think we sacrifice, we become these homogenous, weird spirit angels when we get to heaven. We're gonna get a glorified body. Jesus still looks like Jesus. When he resurrected in his glorified body, people knew who he was. Why? Because he still looked like Jesus and he currently resides in that body. If you don't like diversity, you're gonna hate heaven. If you can't get used to this, you're gonna have a hard time in heaven. It's diverse, it's beautiful from all nations. And they knew this was Moses and Elijah. Why? Because they still look like Moses and Elijah. They appeared to him talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, is it good for us to be here? I love that. Like, hey, should we leave? Right, like, Seems like a pretty tight uh, conversation going on up there. Um, should we go? He says, if you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. By the way, big mistake. They're putting Jesus on the same level as these two guys. That's the whole theological unpacking there. Don't do that. Okay. They're just saying, hey, we'll just make you a tent and him a tent and the other guy a tent, right? And Jesus is like, okay, hold on, Right. While he was speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. God the Father shows up. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when his disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, arise, do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the son of man is risen from the dead. They go up on this mountain and Jesus transfigures. How on earth does this have anything to do with being meek? Because people say, well, show me how Jesus was meek. Jesus's entire life was meek. Jesus commands all the power in the universe. And for a brief moment, he stretches out as creator. God has a quick powwow with the law and the, and the prophets and then allows himself to be recontained in the incarnation where God actually becomes man. And quite possibly the greatest miracle of all is that God himself allowed himself to be confined in a body for 33 years. Not that he transfigured, but again, you can see that in an upside down kingdom, Jesus says, for a brief moment, I'm gonna show you what it's actually like, like it was intended to be, how it should be and how it will be again. And so he recalibrates for a quick moment for a few guys, how big and how great he is. And then he pulls back down into the incarnation, not to avail himself to that power, but to continue to serve, to continue to love, to continue to, to reach out to those who are destitute and lonely and broken and afraid. 
perhaps the greatest miracle of Jesus's life was himself allowing himself to be confined in the incarnation because this was power that allowed itself to be under the control of God the Father. And Jesus came, he said, I came to do not my will, but the Father's will. This was the Father's plan. Though Jesus was every bit creator God, he allowed himself to be put under control in submission to the Father and say, if this is the way we have to do it, then I'm in. If this is what it's like to show a broken world how much God loves them, I'll do it. If I deny myself as creator God for 33 years, to be slaughtered like a lamb. Not my will, but thy will be done. The entirety of Jesus's life was a picture of meekness. That as we go back to that definition that he, that he, was, that he was submissive, that he yielded, that he was obedient, that he was compliant, that he was tame, he was biddable, he was tractable, he was acquiescent, he was humble, he was differential, he was timid, he was unprotesting, unresisting, he was quiet and mild and gentle and docile and lamb-like and, and I don't know about shy, but diffident, unassuming, self-effacing, like a lamb led to the slaughter. This doesn't mean you're weak. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in business. I, I'm, I'm, I'm demanded to be a powerful, as director of marketing, to be a powerful voice. I had a meeting six months into my, my job where the CEO, I've never had this. I've never, most people are like, this should be the opposite conversation. But he said, I need you to be more opinionated. I need you to drive your energy deeper into the roots of this company. I need more from you, right? So I'm in that interesting, because that's normally who I am. Pretty, pretty brash, pretty straightforward. Like, want to get everything done. Want it to be about me. Want it to be all about my team. Want it to be about this. And now I'm in this interesting place where they need more of that. But it doesn't mean that I sacrifice power of my personality, which is one of the reasons I was hired at the company to be a leader, to drive forward. But it says that in those moments, I find those opportunities to be submissive, to be gentle, to be quiet, to listen three times longer than I talk. Some of you are like, I can't imagine you like that. And I know it's tough. I'm struggling with it. I get it. It's tough. But to find this meekness, and I'm not all there. I'm not saying, oh, I'm meek, by the way. Figured it out this weekend. No, not at all. But, but to sit and realize that the creator of the universe came and conversed with the woman at the well and washed the feet of his disciples, though all-powerful, all-consuming, all-knowing, allowed himself to serve and to love for decades until they murdered him for doing the unthinkable and claiming that he was creator God and saying that he was creator God and saying that he was a king. And so he imparts now on the citizens, knowing that he'll be killed for this. You say you're a king? Yes. Yep, I have a kingdom. But they're going to look much differently than you think. And they'll be meek. Not because we think low of ourselves, but because we're serving a God that through his entire life on earth lived in meekness and humility and service and love and care. Didn't mean he was any less of a powerful personality. He, he tussled with the religious folks. He cast out demons. Demons freaked out when they saw him. He was a powerful presence, but he had a peace about him. He had a, 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 a tenderness about him. He had a love about him. He had a grace about him. He had a mercy about him that drew people to him because they knew they could be taken care of by him. 
And as Christians, we're called into this same meekness, not sacrificing leadership skills, not sacrificing career aptitude, not sacrificing working up the chain and establishing leadership. By all means, pursue those things. But I will tell you the moments that I've denied, even in recent years, I've become far more uh, uh, in tune with this, that when I step back from my initial inclination for longer and gather more information. I'm starting to give myself a rule like in conversation and in meetings that I have to ask three questions before I start giving points. Right? Like I need to learn more things before I start demanding that other people learn from me. This is not some rule. I didn't find that in the Bible somewhere. But I'm just learning that, that the more I listen, right? And you, you ever notice you got the people that are like, man, he's just such a good friend. And that's the person that probably didn't talk much while you were talking. Like they're so great. Like I love talking to them. It's because they let you talk. Right? They don't just like, hey, I went, you know, skydiving. Oh, I went skydiving. I've done that. It was so awesome, right? It was so great. Where'd you go? Just the inside thing? It's not that cool. I went over a plane, you know. Like, you know those sort of people that are just about themselves, lifting themselves up. But to extract more and to learn more and to love more and care more, that's the meekness. That's that proper balance. Meekness doesn't make him Jesus. It doesn't make you, as Christians, any less powerful, if you will, any less of a personality, It just demonstrated, Jesus demonstrated that he had a higher purpose and he had a higher authority. And he displayed that perfectly for 33 years. That he was serving in a kingdom radically different than the world would like. And so to be meek means showing willingness to submit and to work under proper authority, proper authority doesn't mean you have to be submissive in an abusive relationship, whether that's employer, whether that's relationship, whether that's parent and child, whether it's boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. Being meek means to show a willingness to submit and work under proper authority. It also means to show willingness to disregard one's own rights and privileges for the sake of a higher calling. That's meekness. And if you say, well, what's in it for me then? The next words are, for they shall inherit the earth. Did you think you were going to get more than that? I'd like to know what that is. But I'm going to get, what are you going to get? Senior manager, <laughs> right? Like at, at Staples. I, I love Staples. I go to Staples, but I'm just saying like, no, I need to be a jerk. I need to climb that ladder to do what? Like an extra dollar an hour. Who are you trampling on to get what? Jesus says, Jesus says, partake in this miracle with me which is reflecting God on earth for the short amount of time that you've given. And here's your payoff. It's not a prosperity. This is no reason to be a Christian, but you need to know as a Christian, you will simply receive the entire earth. My job is not bigger than that. I don't care what you do or who you think you are. You're the president of the United States of America. You're not going to inherit more than the entirety of the earth. And Jesus says, you show them me now. You'll be given all then. And Jesus did the same thing. He came in humility and love and sacrifice in meekness, though he was creator God, serving a higher purpose, a higher calling, willing to do the work of a servant now so that he could secure, though he always had secured, his place in the kingdom then. Jesus knew his role. God the Father didn't die on the cross for your sins. The Holy Spirit wasn't nailed and beaten to a bloody pulp for your sins. They have separate roles. All equally God, all of us here, equal inheritors of the earth. 
with special callings in your life, in your relationships, in your job, in your school right now to show people Jesus before they actually meet him. That's the call. And Jesus says, do it in meekness as I did it in meekness. For they shall inherit the earth. We can only be meek and willing to control our desire for our rights and privileges because we are confident that God watches out for us. He will protect our cause and lead us to something greater. It's a confidence issue. Like Zach talked about this morning, it's a mistrust. Sin often, it it, it wraps its ugly head in this little, subtle mistrust. Zach talked about it this morning that we'll, we'll, we'll give God a little bit of something. I'll give him my Sunday night, but not Monday through Saturday. I'll give him my tithe, but not my offering. I listened, right? I'll, 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 give, him, I'll give him my next relationship, not this one. I'll, I'll give him my purity once I've got, a, I'll give him purity in marriage, but for now I've just got to focus on me a bit. And we give God a little bit, but not much. Why? Because we have a mistrust that his ways actually lead to a life more abundant. And so we hold on to that. And that quite often is how sin is disguised. And so if you're confident that God will lead you to something better, the only thing that would allow Jesus to maintain his focus through that incarnation is knowing where he was headed. And when you know that the kingdom is going to come to earth and that the enemies will be destroyed for those who don't repent in time. When you know that we will serve in a kingdom, we serve in a kingdom, we will praise Jesus forever. When that is how you kick off your mindset, inheriting all things, where no joke, like the road is gold. Like we like buy rings and stuff. It's so precious. Like this is a cobblestone, right? Like that gold ring is a cobblestone in heaven to be trampled on. And when you see that kingdom, right? The call is to then declare meekness now to show meekness now not absorbed to the thing as his world why because we're headed somewhere better and jesus did the same thing i'm telling you he's the best coach i've told you the story before i had a soccer coach in high school that never did anything he never asked us to do anything that he wouldn't do alongside us 12 mile death run on thursday coach ran it with us hill sprints with guys up on your back running up and down a hill with guys on your back coach solace did it he was the first one to do it If you think this is just rules and regulations that Jesus says, I'm that God, that disconnected God of Easternism and all these other religions that say, look, follow the rules and I'll decide whether or not you're good enough. This is a God who came to earth and showed you his character, that lived his character and said, now just follow me in my footsteps. Like I follow Jesus. Why don't you act like him? Uh, Saved by grace, bro. We're gonna get to that next actually. The promise they shall inherit the earth proves that God will not allow his meek ones to end up on the short end of the deal. And that's not a reason to be a Christian, but that should be a hope for the Christian. We will get everything and it's going to be so much better than a paycheck. It's going to be so much better than a slightly larger house. It's going to be so much better than even marriage. It's going to be so amazing And I struggle to put that mindset to work every day. But when that is you, when you know that's where you're going, you're far more happy to shed the things of the world, the anger, the greed, the pride, the ego. You know what? Let's show people Jesus now in hopes that more of them will be welcoming when they see him then.
It says, for they shall inherit the earth. If you go back to Matthew 5. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. We hunger for a lot of stuff. And I'm not just talking like Chipotle. We hunger for a lot of stuff. Power, authority, success, comfort, extended vacations, happiness. We hunger for these things, don't we? We, we, we want that. I do. I told my wife, I was like, I'm going to be a director by 40. I got it at 31. I'm like, now I'm going to be a VP by 40. Right? Like I, I, I hunger for that. It has to be tempered. It's not bad to have ambition. But when I put my time, treasure, and talent full force to work for that, I'm, I'm bleeding into what the world desires from us. And we, we live in a different kingdom. So we hunger for power. We hunger for relationship, attention, Success, comfort, happiness. It's an obvious question. Do we hunger for righteousness? Do you, do you crave that? And people are like, no, bro, I'm saved by grace. I'm good. Like, I, I hunger for Jesus and that's it. And you just become lawless. D- does your life look like his? No, man, saved by grace. Well, he was the epitome of grace. And why are you looking so different than him? He came in the fullness of truth and grace. Why does your life not look like his? Notice he's the standard, not me. It's not like, why don't you look like Zach? Why don't you act like Zach? Why don't you, why don't you act like Pastor Brett? Why aren't you more like Pastor Rob? Why aren't you more like your friend? Why aren't you more like your parents? That's not the standard. I will, I will quit preaching if I ever set myself up as the standard. Jesus is that standard. And that call to righteousness, he embodied, he came in truth and grace. I looked up the Google definition again. What is righteousness? Do we, do we crave this? It says morally right or justifiable, virtuous, synonyms, good, virtuous, upright, upstanding, decent, ethical, principled, moral, high-minded, law-abiding, honest, honorable, blameless, irreproachable, noble, saintly, angelic, and pure. And pure. Now, we're going to dive into righteousness, but we have, to, we have to set the stage. We have to level the playing field. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned. And in the original language, it's kind of tricky. All actually means all. Raise your hand if you're a part of the all. Anyone? Jeff? Yeah? Steven, I can't see you back there in the dark. Okay, I'm just checking. So we meet for lunch sometimes. We're going to have to talk about this. <laughs> all have fallen short. Yes? Matthew 5.20. Jesus. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds, exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you are righteous. It's one thing to even attempt to get at their level. They are the religious Olympians. Like the Pharisees, Usain Bolt laughing at people. Right? Like no, I think he's a great dude. I think he's super humble. Hope he loves Jesus, right? But, but 
they, they simply are so far beyond people. They memorize entire books of the Bible. They have an entire set of rules to ensure that they don't even come close to breaking the actual rules. We've reduced Christianity to what can I get away with, right? They had rules to make sure that they didn't even break one of the actual rules. They couldn't carry things on the Sabbath, And then they came up with rules that if it was under a certain weight and you did it at the top of your hand, it wasn't carrying things or spilling. They had an elaborate network of laws to make sure that they didn't even come close to breaking the actual laws. We can't leave our bedroom without breaking the law. We can't get out of bed without breaking the law. Moral law, nonetheless, let alone traffic law, you stop completely before the white lines of a, of a crosswalk, said no honest person ever. You've never done 66 on the freeway? Some of you are like, I've seen you going to work, Mark, on the motorcycle in your cute little shorts, and you're just doing like 85. We can't, we can't even adhere to nominal, morally, basically, we can't even, we can't even stick to common sense traffic law. Anyone ever jaywalked? It's illegal. Anyone ever changed lanes without using a signal? It's illegal. You can't even keep that. We don't, I don't want to talk about the hundreds of laws that actually violate who God is. The scribes and the Pharisees were epic at religion. They were Olympians. They danced around people in their ability to keep it. They had other issues to be sure, but when it came to the law, they wrote them all out and then they drew a line and they said, but we won't even do this so we don't come close to this. And Jesus himself says, unless you exceed them. How many of you memorize the book of Numbers? Anyone? Memorize Leviticus? Some of you are like, I don't, is, is, is Numbers a book in the Bible? <laughs> what Numbers? What Numbers am I supposed to be looking at? It's a book. Okay. Unless you're better than that, on that account alone, I don't think anyone here is better than that, myself included, we don't get in. So when he calls us to be hungry for righteousness... How does this look? We see that we can't be saved by it. We can't be saved by righteousness and we can't be saved by our hunger for righteousness. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't hunger for righteousness. It's not a, it's not a big theological point. People are like, well, I can't be saved by it, right? So what do we do? We go lawless. I might as well not even try really because then I just seem like a legalist. We'll never be saved by our hunger for righteousness by any means, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't hunger for it. In fact, Jesus right here calls us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So where does this hunger come from? Kind of like what Zach did last week. If if you walk away from this and begin to try to muster up a hunger for righteousness, you've missed the point or the point I'm about to make. So before I even make it, don't come into this because you kind of feel like your inner legal list, like kind of boiling up right now. You're like, give me the list. Like, show me the, what do I need to? Some of you do that. Some of you are like, no way at all, right? You've got lawless, you've got legal. We all struggle between those two and any given day. We're super legalistic about other people's sin. We're super lawless when it comes to our sin, right? And so when you take a look at this righteousness and you take a look at this hunger, the last thing I want you to do is go home and say, all right, now I need to kind of muster up some hunger for it. What do I do? Do I need to fast? Do I just need to come with some legalistic system for reading my Bible all the time? I need to cram this down my throat? No, God says he'll take care of it. 
I'm going to point you to relying on him to instill this in you. I'm not going to ask that you try to muster it up yourself. I tried that. Son of a pastor, for decades, I tried to muster up the religiosity. And until I fully understood that it was about truly accepting what God wanted to put into you, it, it, I was a shell of a Christian. Went to ch- I outdid you at going to church. I had a pin with bars from Sunday school, perfect attendance for years. I did the whole thing, and I was a shell, a religious shell. I wasn't allowing myself to be poured into Romans 5, 1 through 5. It's speaking on righteousness. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, right? In the, in the court of morality, you've been justified. You're, you're vindicated. You're now innocent in that regard of the committed crime in question. He says, so therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God and not of that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations produces perseverance and perseverance, character and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It says, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. You'll notice he says this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be what? Filled. You've heard this, but I think many of us haven't actually internalized it and we don't actually believe that it will happen. You've heard saying, we got to empty yourself. So God, you got to reduce yourself to a minimum so he can pour in his maximum. You know, we're like, yay, bumper sticker theology. Let's do it. How is that going? Well, I don't know. Tomorrow's Monday and Mondays are terrible. Probably not a good day to do it. This is what it looks like. It's not a prayer for righteousness. It's not a prayer even for a superficial hunger for righteousness. It's a prayer that your heart would be open to be poured into because that's the key. The key is not coming up with your own system to ascend to righteousness. It's open yourself up who the Bible says to the Holy Spirit who was given to you. It's a gift. Your prayer should be Holy Spirit cause me to hunger for righteousness. That's your prayer. Go to the core of the issue. Don't deal with the symptoms. Get to the root the root is not that, that, that you don't know how to act, right? You've got a whole Bible about it. We're going through the Beatitudes. You're like, man, it's really tough to be meek. I've got to go try to be meek. You missed it. The point is to open yourself up all the way down to the root and say, I can't be meek. I can't hunger for righteousness. Why? Because the world's upside down. I don't see it. God, open my heart pour yourself in, pull the scales from my eyes so that even now in a broken and fallen world in an upside down kingdom, I can see the way that you want me to express your love, your joy, your compassion, your mercy, your grace on earth now. Does that make sense? I will sit down and, and not let anyone leave until we get that point. Is that I am not calling you to pray for righteousness. I'm not even really calling you for a, a prayer, again, of, of a superficial, God, you know, make me hungry. I very specifically 
want us to pray that our heart would be open for the Holy Spirit to pour in God's love. That's the core. That's the root. The symptoms take, they, they, they spring from that core, from that root. I'm not concerned with the leaves. I want to get to the base of the tree. And so that should be that specific prayer. Some of you have prayed to stop sinning. You've never prayed for a restored heart that will then produce a desire to kill your sin. You've asked to kill sin. You haven't asked to be healed on the inside so that sin is no longer desirable. When I finally broke my addiction, 17-year addiction to porn, it was not God's help me stop watching porn because I had prayed that for about 16 and a half years. And some of you were there with, your, with greed, with lust, with gossip, with ego, with pride, with anger, with selfishness, with entitlement, with power, with authority, with unsubmissiveness. You're praying against that sin and you're elevating sin way beyond its place in this world. You're focused on a sin that Jesus says, I already took care of it. The call now is to then be filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean you'll be sinless, but I'm telling you when the root begins to heal, the fruit will begin to grow and that tree will look incredibly different. You don't water the branches of a tree. You don't water the orange hanging from the tree. You water the roots because from that, all things spring. And it says, for they shall be filled. And I'm not appealing to your legalists. I'm not appealing to your lawlessness. I'm appealing to the Christian that says, I follow Jesus. Therefore, every day by the grace of God, your life should look a little bit more like his. And this isn't new. Isaiah 42, 6 said this, on the call and the purpose of righteousness, on the call and the purpose of righteousness. There is a call and a purpose to this righteousness. Isaiah 42, 6 says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will, I love this. This is what separates the real God from all the fake gods. Every other God says, you should be good, period. Be righteous, if you will. Be blameless, be as good as possible. And that's where it ends every single time. Here's why the God of the Bible is entirely different. I, the Lord, have called you to righteousness and will hold your hand. This is pre-Jesus. This is Old Testament. God's like, I'll still hold your hand. No other God of any fake false religion says, I'll be there for you as you attempt it. I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Sometimes, and forgive me if I've ever preached that God only cared about Israel in the Old Testament. He says this, I will give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. He even called the nation of Israel to show Gentiles God in modern form. That's the call for us, for us to live a life that sheds light to a broken and dying world, that we would be a light to the unsaved. And some of you are like, that's Old Testament though. Then Jesus came. I'm saved by grace, bruh. So Jesus decides to up the ante. I don't know if you know this about Jesus, but people are like, oh yeah, Jesus came and wiped the law off the face of the planet. If you read his words, he made it harder. Made it harder. Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, this is all Jesus wants from you. 
This is it. Here it is. Ready? You want, you want, you want, here's how you get into heaven. He says, because unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees, you can't get in. Okay, then how do I get in? It's very simple. Therefore, you should be perfect. How's that going this week? People are like, I'm leaving the church. I'm fine. Another church doesn't ask me to be that. Check this. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Those are words of Jesus, right? Imagine if he was here, we're like, just give us a nugget. Like, give us, he's like, I got 60 seconds. Here it is. Look, from, from your creator to you guys, uh, be perfect. People are like, I'm going to check out the Mormon service tomorrow. I don't, like, at least they got rules. They have a pamphlet, like, what to follow. Just be perfect? What, what kind of advice is that? Just be perfect. How can we be perfect? How can we be perfect in meekness? How can we be perfect in righteousness? Jesus himself just said, are you arguing with Jesus? Yeah, but he didn't mean be, it's in the red text. Just be perfect. What did he mean? Just be perfect, right? Here's the deal. You need to know this too. A lot of times we think that God the father is the one who judges, right? We set up a courtroom And there's some merit to this because in Revelation it says that we have an advocate, we have an accuser in Satan, we have an advocate in Jesus. So we set up the courtroom and we figure God the Father is up in the big chair in the big black robe. We've got Jesus by our side because he's our homeboy, just like the t-shirt says so, right? And then we've got Satan who's leveling all these accusations against us. And by the way, Jesus isn't going to refute him. How could he? He wouldn't be telling the truth. Like Mark was a porn addict. Jesus is going to be like, you were. That alone, you're done. You don't get in. How on earth as an advocate does Jesus... Defend against that. How on earth do we then become perfect? The Bible actually says that the father judges no one. He's committed all judgment to the son. Because the judgment of God, the judgment of God the father was poured out on Jesus, he has none left. He has none left. He poured it all out on the cross. God the father has no more wrath. He's no longer angry. That's why the Old Testament looks a little different than the New Testament because wrath was satisfied. So when Satan levels these accusations and some of you come here tonight with shame and doubt and you've been beat over the head with religiosity, indirectly, directly, and you hear these words of Jesus to just be perfect. Be perfect and you'll get into heaven. This is a call, as you see through the rest of his ministry, in other words, this is a call to take off yourself. As Zach has said, to take off your cloak of wickedness and put on his cloak of righteousness. When Satan says, he did this, she did that, she doesn't deserve, he doesn't deserve heaven, I'm sorry to say, Jesus agrees. He doesn't. She doesn't deserve. But Satan, you missed something. This child is in me. So when Jesus goes to pour out judgment, when he sees you, Wrapped in his righteousness, you're perfect. Christian is not just a title we hold. It is something that we are in. Hundreds of times the Bible calls us to be in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in him, in Jesus, in Christ. So that when those accusations are leveled at us, Jesus says, I know. He, she doesn't deserve heaven. But they've taken off themselves. They've died to themselves. They now wear my robe of righteousness and I was perfect and I was slaughtered as their sin and now they are perfect. And so in him, we find this call and this purpose to righteousness 
And so we desire our broken pursuit of righteousness to point to the one who is and who has made us righteous. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for tonight. Um, Just pray for clarity on the concepts discussed. I, I, I thank you, thank you that we don't serve a God that from a far off distant galaxy said, here are the rules, try to follow them. That you said, here is who I am and I will show you who I am and call you to be like me. And I pray that that's what sinks into the heart of your children tonight. That this is not setting up legalism by any means. This is not setting up lawlessness by any means. This is stirring in the heart of your people the desire to follow you and to look like you and to reflect you to a fallen world so that when you return, so that when you return, people will have seen you before in the lives of those who are here. Would you empower myself Would you empower everyone here this week to to reframe their paradigm, to to upend the paradigm, understanding we live in an upside-down kingdom, but we are called to a different character set than the world that includes meekness, that includes this hunger for righteousness. Holy Spirit, would you score the hearts of the people here tonight? Would you pour yourself in? Would you do a radical work, not for our glory, but for yours? Jesus, we love you. We praise you. Empower us now as we go. In your name, amen.